A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Wednesday morning, the 29th of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11 a.m. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The reason why we tabled the bill today is because we wanted to give every member of Dáil Éireann a very simple opportunity to state clearly and categorically through a vote on legislation as to whether they were in favour of extending this crucial protection for renters or whether they were going to vote to increase uh, homelessness. That's Ono Brain, Sinn Féin spokesperson on housing, speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday after tabling a bill that hoped to stop no-fault evictions. In my own constituency, I have one particularly difficult case of a woman in her 70s. Her notice to quit is due on Saturday. She has no family or friends to stay with and she should not have to face the prospect of either overholding or presenting and being accepted if a place is available in a shared accommodation low threshold hostel in Dublin city centre because that is all that is left at this point in time. Nobody should be in emergency accommodation but particularly not a woman in her 70s who has worked her entire life whose children have done well and are now living abroad and she is left here to face the consequences of Minister O'Brien's housing policy. Oh no, Brian Pad Daly also told the doll about an elderly person who is facing eviction. We had contact from one mother of four children who was told that she had to leave by her landlord. She had no options and is terrified that she will end up homeless. Once that happens, it's difficult to see a path back to stable housing for her so long as current government policies continue. A woman in her 80s was in touch with our office. She was given notice a while back now, but with the increased competition for housing and rent prices, she has nowhere to go. Meanwhile, Angus O'Snuddy relayed many more hard stories. One woman says, I have been renting my current home for 10 years and have been served a notice to quit by my landlord who intends to sell his property in April. I'm currently out of work due to severe illness and I'm terrified of the precocious position I face. My days are filled with medical appointments including nephrologist, renal nurse, renal dietitian and, and more. Merely staying alive has been battled over the last few years. After years of battling, I am now facing homelessness. The additional stress and uncertainty this brings further impacts on my kidney disease. Another woman, I'm currently on the housing list 11 years. I am renting through the HAP at the moment and the landlord is moving into her home in May. We've been given notice to quit by the landlord. The original date was the 17th of March, but that has been extended until May the 1st. 
uh, as of the current eviction ban. I have two kids aged 10 and 8. I'm sick of having to up and move them every two years and then have to start all over again. Not a woman. I am... I have now been on the housing waiting list with DCC for 12 years. I am a mother of one 12-year-old son and living in Crumlin uh, in private rented accommodation in, re- in receipt of rent allowance supplement. My landlord has plans to sell the current property I am in, giving me notice that I am in the following months uh, to find alternative accommodation. COVID eviction ban meant I was able to stay on in this property when the landlord originally wanted to sell. Uh, now I'm faced with eviction. Denise Charlton added to these stories of people about to become homeless being told by her Sinn Féin colleagues. I too have a woman in her 70s who's staring eviction in the face and she's nowhere left to turn. She was told that she has to wait until her notice to quit date falls and then she has to declare herself homeless. Can you imagine the mental trauma of becoming homeless in your 70s? I've also another case of a young woman with three children who's been made homeless in the middle of April. This woman is absolutely devastated. She's heartbroken at the thought of having to tell her children the reality. Where is she and her three children going to go, Minister? Please tell me, because this woman has told me she is on the verge of a breakdown. Another Sinn Féin TD, Martin Kenny, added to the reality of what lifting this ban will mean for people. I spoke to a woman the other day. Her husband has MS. She has a small child with a medical condition as well. She has a notice for eviction. She doesn't know where she's going to go. She's trying to get a local authority house, hoping beyond hope that something will come up. And and that's the problem that we've got. She may have to move to another end of the county in order for to be able to get that in place. And Rose Conway Walsh said the ban would impact people of all descriptions, including members of Fine Gael. I spoke to one such man yesterday in his 70s. He's a retired civil servant. He worked all his life, as he said himself, paid all his taxes, and this is how you treat him. His landlord won't renew his lease, and he's left in this precarious situation in his 70s. He can't be considered for a mortgage or can't be considered for anything else. And he tells me he's feeling trapped and full of fear because of what your government is is doing to to him. I've been dealing with another woman who works in Westport. She was issued with a notice to quit on New Year's Eve after living in the same home for 10 years. Since then, she's been desperately looking for somewhere to live for her and her daughter. She needs to be in Westport for work so that her, her, she can go to work and that her daughter can go to the childminder. In, in her own words, I have viewed many properties but haven't been successful. I'm at my wit's end and my tether now. I don't know what else I can do. As it stands, at the end of the month, we could be homeless. The prospect really scares me. While we were in the middle of a pandemic and most people were at home safe from the virus, I was out working every day, risking bringing COVID back to my daughter. I was on to Westport County Council and the only thing they can do is give me a voucher for B&B. Sinn Féin TDs lining up to tell incredibly hard stories of people facing eviction in the coming weeks and months. 
since uh, there is no disputing the reality of uh, the situation. The government obviously says, though, that if you delay this decision, you'll make it even worse for even more people who will have to face the prospect of uh, becoming homeless. Let's speak to our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. Sean, it seems at this stage that there's no stopping the evictions that will start to come into force from Saturday onwards. No, well, I mean, there's a couple of things that might stop them being started. It all really depends on when the notice to quit was given, I suppose. So obviously under the legislation, it is a phasing out. It's not a direct ending of the ban this Saturday. So if someone got their notice to quit during the eviction moratorium, they may have a little bit longer, but it does all depend on individual circumstances. And Mm. there will certainly be people who got their eviction notice before this ban started, but yes, will face eviction potentially from Saturday and there could be evictions in very difficult scenes that we'll see over the weekend as there was videos on social media in the last week one particular one that got a lot of attention from Donegal for example um, that are very very difficult to watch Indeed we're going to hear uh, probably thousands of uh, stories over the coming weeks and months of elderly people of sick people Uh, of uh, lone parents, uh, of people who need to work in a town but can't find somewhere to live in that town. Uh, And uh, this seems almost inevitable at this stage. Yeah, it does. And we've seen it cropping up already in the last few days where you're hearing stories. And particularly, so the ones who find harrowing is when it is older people because, you know, it's not a massive amount of the older population of people in retirement who, who are renting, but there are people there now facing... Uh, eviction people who've been in situ maybe from many many years and now landlords are um, deciding to sell up the property maybe at the top of the market or, or looking at things and deciding to get out because of the regulations that are there some of which is fair enough on the, the landlord's point of view and in a normal market would be absolutely fine but we're not in the normal market unfortunately we're in a market where things are incredibly incredibly strange and that if you do lose your house and you lose your the roof over your head it is next to impossible in many parts of the country to find them you know i had a quick look on on daft the other day for around my own area for the county of wicklow and there was about 20 properties none of which were below 1500 euro a month to rent and most of which were, were going for, for much much higher so it is a very very difficult thing and it's going to be look it's going to be very difficult for people over the coming months there's going to be difficult scenarios where people are just properly kicked out there will be other scenarios where people are going to overhold and then stay beyond the period that they um, that they have the lease because they simply can't go anywhere and indeed you have some, some TDs that people poor profit encouraging people to mm. do that Okay, but the government says that extending the ban would make that very bad situation all the worse and it looks likely that the government will win this argument and win the vote this evening it does, yeah. It looks as though that's going to be the case now as of this morning. There are a number of independents who voted with the government last week, particularly in the regional independent group, the likes of Sean Canney, Dennis Nocton, Matt Shannon, Carl Berry, who haven't confirmed what way they are going to vote. And they've been engaging with the government over the last few days, all of them independents with particular issues close to their hearts that they are trying to, to progress forward. You have the likes of Noel Grealish, for example, who was absent for last week's vote, returning this time around. He usually votes with the government on issues like this and Michael Lowry as well. So if they vote with the government, then it will be ultimately quite close. But the opposition have been trying to put the screws on them. Uh, Anna Patrick had a good line last night in the Dáil where she said, uh, encourage these independents not to be Mighty Mouse in the constituency and Mickey Mouse in the Dáil voting with the government and keeping everything that they've been excoriating Mm. uh, up and running. And then the independents uh, rural group led by Matthew McGrath issued a statement yesterday. And while it didn't directly 
say that all of their members would be voting against the government. It was excoriating ministers for their handling of the housing crisis over many years and sort of encouraging people to vote in a way that would lead to significant change, which suggests that they will vote with, uh, with the uh, we'll vote against the government mm. confidence motion as it's going to be because, of course, the way it's structured, just to get a little bit technical for a second, Labour issued a no-confidence vote. The government have flipped it around and put a confidence vote, a simple mm. one line, actually, very different to last week when there was 2,000 words of, a, of an argument. It's just one line this morning that the Dáil reaffirms confidence uh, in the government short, but I suppose in the, in the eyes of the opposition, not so sweet. Indeed, I heard in the bulletins in the bulletin you were able to count the number of words in that motion on your fingers. But it was interesting as well to hear Richard Boyd Barrett appeal to independence in the Dáil to stop the horse trading, as he put it, with the government. The Tánaiste Michal Martin then said that there were no deals being done with independence, but independent Peter Fitzpatrick told us on the programme last week he was offered a deal and as far as he was concerned, all of the TDs in his group were also offered a deal. I can see on the monitor at the moment, Sean, that that confidence motion is getting underway in the Dáil. As you say, it was a no-confidence motion from the Labour Party, but now the Dáil will be asked to vote confidence in the government. Will the government win that vote, do you think? I think so. Look, I think the way that they've put it allows the their own backbench TDs, uh, some of whom are uneasy, obviously, with this vote. And we saw Nasser Hurricane go overboard last week to reaffirm confidence in, in the government to say, well, look, we're not just voting on housing, we're voting on all the other good things that the government is doing. And the other actor in his speech is going to say, uh, points to all the other different areas of, uh, of uh, what the government is doing, points to the likes of the economy, points to having more people in work, but also then argue uh, what he's been arguing in the Dáil over the last few weeks when it comes to housing, that no, everything isn't perfect and the government does need to be doing more, but that the government is building more social housing now than it has uh, at any point during his lifetime, that there were more than 30,000 units completed last year. Uh, and then, of course, uh, there is going to be plenty of attacking into the opposition, you know, and as I say, he's, he's just getting up to deliver that opening speech now, uh, ripping into the Labour Party largely, but also opposition uh, parties who who get up and want to say that everything has always been awful uh, under the, this government when it comes to the handling of housing and that every housing minister has got it wrong, but as he puts it, without suggesting any real credible alternatives and, and indeed uh, probably going to point out that four or five of the last 12 years the Labour Party did hold the housing brief mm. uh, and he's been quite critical as of many in Fine Gael of saying that well look Labour are sort of trying to dismiss their own past in order to get back in with the lefty groups in the door when actually they were involved in quite a lot of these decisions and would have agreed with these decisions when they were in government. And if the government was to lose this vote it wouldn't stop anybody from getting evicted on Saturday or on Saturday week week or in a month or two from now? No, I mean, the, what would happen is very likely the doll would be dissolved tonight if the government loses this vote this morning. Then into an election campaign, the eviction plan would still lapse on Saturday and the first time that the doll would meet would probably be May with realistically a government not being formed for a few months beyond that because the numbers don't, if the numbers were to fall as the polling has suggested for the last year and a half, there isn't a very clear way to form a government. So that's certainly a point that the Overagra is going to make. And that's going to be a point that he's going to have been putting to the independent TDs over the last few days as well, because they would all be knocking on doors by the end of the week, the same as everybody else. And again, not necessarily guaranteed their seat. That's something that tends to focus minds when it does get into these votes. And just to go back briefly to what you said a second ago about no 
deal being offered, the government has always said this when we know it, it, it's not true. There may not be a written formal deal in the way that there was the likes of the Gregory deal in the past, for example, but go, to go back many years. Uh, but there has always been understandings with these independent TDs, and that's why they secure the votes of them, be it Michael Harry, Tipperary, or Greenish and Galway, or others who you, you, you don't get a formal contract if you like, but you get a wink and a nod. It's not surprising, and probably only right, that this situation is dominating uh, the business of uh, the doll because it, it really is such a, an important uh, situation uh, issue uh, and indeed such a, a helpless uh, situation that people find themselves in if they have nowhere to go and they're facing into eviction but ordinarily uh, we would be speaking about uh, the treatment of women in the defence forces and this shocking review that highlights the bullying the intimidation the abuse, the assault, the torture and the rape of women in the Defence Forces and something that has been known for 20 years. It's one of the most scandalous reports I have ever read from any government department over the years and I kind of, it kind of hit home to me how significant it was when I spoke to Cabinet Ministers yesterday because their minister meeting ran very, very late because of two main issues, one being the LDA that was up yesterday but also... Uh, the discussion around this, and you had very senior ministers who have been around the block a number of times who have seen an awful lot of very grim reports come across their desk, and they were telling me this is one of the worst that they have ever read, and for a number of reasons. I mean, some of the lines, I, you, you respect to the independent group who actually carried it out, because a lot of times, you know, some of the findings in these reports can be somewhat sugar-coated or played down or put into political and bureaucratic language. They did not do any of that. It is very stark and it is very plain. The, the fact that women at best, and this is a quote, women at best are barely tolerated in the defence forces and at worst subject to physical, psychological and sexual abuse. That, as you say, there have been sexual assaults, and not just on women, but also on men, up, and, up to and including uh, rape in the defence forces. Some of the Language that was used, that one contribution I remember was someone saying that from the second you were initiated, the C word is very commonly used to refer to women in the defence forces. They talked about being punched in the stomach during training jails, being kicked while they were doing push-ups, being uh, women being held to the same physical standard as men, even though that isn't what the defence forces regulation is, and being abused if they if they didn't reach it. And um, it's incredibly shocking what's going on and I think probably the most shocking part and something that I heard again from a number of ministers is that when you hear a report like this it's usually retrospective it's something that happened in Ireland's past that has since been addressed and that is terribly awful but you're talking about maybe a compensation scheme you're talking about something we've moved on from this report makes it very clear that this is the current and present culture within the defence forces it is not something from the past but something that persists and a statutory inquiry is obviously being set up. The Tornish and Michal Martin has said that that is, is to find solid facts where this report has found evidence and obviously compelling evidence that the inquiry is to find a matter of facts for the historical record. But in the meantime, there needs to be serious change because you can imagine straight away how some of the people within the Defence Forces who are responsible for this and perpetrating this uh, may look for reprisals. That is mentioned in the report as something that needs to be stamped out uh, straight away. And how would anyone want to have a career in the Defence Forces or want their family member to have a career in the Defence Forces when you're looking at a report like this and going, this is the current standard? Okay, Sean, we have to leave it there. Thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning. Thanks, Mayor Michael. Cheers. Our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. 
Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Daft.ie has published its latest quarterly house price report. This is for the first three months of this year and has seen small increases in the cost of housing in County Louth and in County Mead. The 4% increase in County Louth, the 2% increase in County Mead. But nationally, prices have actually fallen by 0.3%. Let's speak to the author of uh, the report, Roland Lyons, who is an economist at Trinity College in Dublin. A very good morning to you, Roland. Thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. When when was the last time prices fell? So what's particularly, I suppose, notable about this is that this is a fall in the first three months of the year. So normally the housing market is a little bit seasonal and especially if you look over the last 10, 15 years of of draft reports, the last three months of a year tend to see prices relatively stable or maybe falling back a little bit. And then there's usually, usually a bump in the first three months of the year. This is the first time that we haven't seen that bump. There was a fall of about a half percent in the last three months of 2022. Um, and then in the first three months of 2023, there was another fall of 0.3%. It's the first time we've seen a, uh, a fall this time of the year since 2013, so in a, full, in a full 10 years. And that's reasonably consistent across the country. But you did mention, you know, prices up or prices down. A, a, a normal way or another way, rather, of, of, of comparing prices is to think of where are prices now compared to a year ago. And if you do that... You may remember when we chatted maybe this time last year, we were talking about double-digit inflation in in lots of parts of the country in the sales market. Now it's still up, but it's up only 2.7% nationally. Um, And that's really about what happened between March and June last year. So that's going to fall out of the year-on-year figures the next time we're chatting in in three months' time. It really is a market where conditions have changed quite a bit since the middle of last year. Okay. And what's driving that change, do you think? In, in part, it's an improvement in supply. So the number of homes that are coming onto the market at any particular point in time has improved a bit, especially in the greater Dublin area. But really, that's not enough to explain the complete change in conditions from rapidly rising to um, slightly falling prices. I think what's much more likely to do the bulk of the the, the, the work in terms of changing conditions over the last while is actually a, a, a softening in demand. So between interest rates rising, the cost of living having gone up and therefore housing budgets getting squeezed, and then also people just a little bit less certain about uh, how things are going to be one or two or three years from now. All of that, I think, is weighing on the demand side of the market, and that's why we're seeing prices fall. Okay, and uh, I take it those interest rates, uh, which are pretty dramatic uh, for a lot of people, those increases are pretty dramatic for uh, a lot of people, are having a huge influence on the decisions that some people are making, or or yeah. not or, or not making, deciding not to move. Yeah, so the, the group that's most exposed are those on tracker mortgages, and of course there's no new tracker mortgages, they're people who typically bought... 15 to 20 years ago, and they have been hit every time there's an increase in the European Central Bank. They, it, it one for one goes through to their interest rate. But of course, that doesn't affect necessarily new purchasers in the market. It may affect the mobility of uh, of some of the those on trackers. But of course, they were probably staying put in order to keep their tracker mortgage. Really, what we're seeing now is. Uh, 
the, the, the impact of, of stress testing. So any time somebody new comes into the housing market and they want to borrow, um, under the central bank rules, it's required that they're stress tested for two percentage points above the current interest rate. So when interest rates were very low, if they were 2%, say, a year ago, you were stress tested up to 4%. But now, if interest rates are 4%, you're stress tested up to 6%. So that, that is what is, is, um, making it unviable, I think, for some households to get into the, to, to buy a home where previously they might have been able to. But on the flip side, there are the, the central bank rules have been relaxed and there are, there is help to buy and the first home scheme. Um, but I think they're, you still have to pass the basic maths for the individual bank. And, and, and I think that's where the demand is, is, is falling off a little bit. OK, do you believe that this could be a, a blip or is it a levelling of prices or is it the beginning of prices starting to fall? I know that when most people, sort of by, by dint of, of, of painful experience, most people aren't when we think of prices falling, we tend to think of dramatic price falls. I, I don't think we're in that territory at all because what happened... 2007 to 2012 was effectively a reversal of unsustainable lending practices. Now, we haven't had unsustainable lending practices over the past five to ten years. What we're seeing now is a a, a more ordinary correction uh, or a change in economic conditions. I I don't think there'll be any upward pressure on prices over the course of the year. I think we're probably talking about prices between stable and maybe two or three percent falls. I think that's that's my expectation. Of course, (laughs) People like me have been wrong in the past, so we'll, we'll see where we are in, in six, nine, twelve months' time. But that's what I think the the, um, the balance of supply and demand points to slight falls over the course of the year, but nothing dramatic. All right, and supply is always the key, isn't it? Uh, there were 30% more homes available to buy on the 1st of March this year than on the 1st of March last year, but the numbers are still very small. That's right, yeah. So about 13,000 homes available to buy at the moment, up from 10,000 a year ago. But the average pre-COVID, and remember, pre-COVID was hardly a, a market imbalance. It was still a tight market. The average then was about 25,000. So we're still well below the levels of availability that um, we had got used to pre-COVID. Um, and that will take, I think, both... Um, um, uh, stable conditions in the second-hand market and in, in the, the market for construction, neither of which really is there at the moment. There's a bit of uncertainty in the second-hand market and in the primary, the construction market, um, uh, there's a, 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 an extraordinary increase in costs, which has meant that they were going to see less built this year than last year, which unfortunately means the underlying issue of a lack of supply won't get addressed anytime soon. All of the different issues uh, relating to housing are uh, dominating uh, the political agenda. The last time you were with us, Ronan Lyons, uh, you said you believed that there was a shortage of between 200 and 250,000 houses in this country. That figure seems to have been accepted by the government, the Taoiseach, saying we're short 250,000 houses. You also spoke uh, about uh, the million houses built in a decade in Sweden and interesting to see the Labour Party saying they want to build a million houses in a decade uh, there's a clear shortfall uh, and I'm not sure how much confidence uh, there is in how quickly we're going to tackle this problem what are your thoughts on it at this stage yeah I think it's important for voters to realize the severity of the situation that's uh, certainly not uh, I'm not saying we should take the status quo at all but we also need to be careful of any easy solutions that are proposed uh, if you saw yesterday the LDA had a report out talking about how many tens of thousands of homes could be built on state-owned land but also that it would take 
decades to do so. Mm. And unfortunately, when you build up a, a that's the wrong verb, maybe, um, when you um, when you develop a housing shortage over the period of, of decades, which we have done with a, a, obviously a notable exception in the early 2000s, it will take decades to unwind. So really, the, we're not going to solve this this side of, of 2030, absolutely not. What we can do is change the dynamic and to do that, the number of homes built per year needs to increase dramatically. 30,000 last year was, was much, uh, was very welcome, given it was up from 20,000 in, in the previous couple of years. But 30,000 should really be the floor going forward. And unfortunately, I think it looks like it's going to be the peak of the cycle for the moment with the change in construction costs and, and a few other factors at the moment. Okay. I, I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on uh, the eviction ban uh, that you'd like to share with us or, or not. It's, I, I, I'll readily admit it's not my area of expertise mm-hmm. in terms of, of, of homelessness. I do think, though, when you, when you listen to those who are experts in the area, they come back to the same point that the number going into homelessness hasn't really changed at any particular point in time. What's happening is that there's nowhere for them to go, there's nowhere for them to come out, and that's about that comes back to building homes. Um, so it's a bit boring on my part, but it comes back to the same answer. We need mm-hmm. to build more homes. Okay, well... Perhaps uh, some room for optimism uh, from your report today showing uh, that drop, uh, the first drop uh, in prices in the first three months of the year in a decade, small and all as that 0.3% is, uh, but it's in the right direction in terms of affordability for people. Ronan, thank you indeed for joining us uh, as always. Thank you, thank you indeed. Ronan Lyons, economist at Trinity College Dublin, who is the author of the DAF.ie report. Michael Reed on LMFM. They really were terrible stories of hardship uh, that people are facing into in the coming weeks and months uh, that we listened to at the beginning of uh, the programme from many of uh, the Sinn Féin TDs who took part in that debate last night. They want to stop that hardship by ending the ban on evictions. The Sinn Féin bill in front of us here this evening will have only one outcome it will shrink the number of homes that are available to rent. Less than one month ago, Sinn Féin proposed an extension to the eviction moratorium, which would end with a cliff edge on New Year's Eve. Less than one week ago, the same party, Sinn Féin, proposed an extension to the eviction moratorium, which would end again on a cliff edge on the 31st of January. But tonight, Sinn Féin proposes an extension to the eviction moratorium with a phasing-out period to the 18th of April next year. So lest anyone be in any doubt, Sinn Féin are playing politics with this matter. They have continually changed their position on the ban, saying on the one hand that they would remove no-fault evictions permanently, while on the other hand saying they would not let the ban continue past New Year's Eve. That's the Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien, speaking in that debate in the Dáil last night, saying uh, that the Sinn Féin proposal to extend the ban just simply won't work. The Minister did, however, recognise that there are problems, many problems that many people are facing. All of us are aware of the very difficult situation with regard to the private rental sector. And you do know, by the three changes you've already made in your own position over a few short weeks, that the measures that you would bring forward here this evening will further shrink that private rental market. And whether you like it or not, as we're increasing the supply of social homes, which is indisputable, of affordable homes for the first time in a generation, through schemes that you've opposed as well, that by continuing 
your demonization of the private rental sector, you'll continue to drive more and more landlords and reduce the properties that are actually out there. And Deputy, the only policy that you've brought forward in relation to individual mom and pop landlords to supposedly retain them is to tax them an additional 400 euro, 400 euro per year by your second home tax. That is the fact. The Minister was speaking in that Dáil debate last night. Uh, the Dáil has been debating a different motion this morning because, as you know, the Labour Party tabled a motion of no confidence in the government, which could lead to a general election. The government, however, has tabled a counter-motion. So what is being debated is a motion of confidence in the government. Uh, let's hear what the Taoiseach has been saying this morning. I admire and respect the passion and indignation shown by many of those who are trying to find solutions, whether in this House or outside it. It speaks to our empathy and compassion as a nation, our determination to make things better and care for others. As a government, our job is to match this passion with action. We have to lead with ideas that are realistic and implementable. We need to demonstrate convincingly that we understand the scale of the crisis and that we care deeply about those experiencing its consequences. My only criticism of proceedings in this House is that too often it allows the critics of government to show passion and indignation without presenting new ideas, let alone having them tested. Indeed, they get very offended when they are tested. So instead of honesty about the scale of the problem and what can be achieved given the constraints, we get quick fixes, simple solutions, populist rhetoric, constant interruptions, politicians claiming that they just care more, conspiracy theories about the causes of the crisis and the demonization of those who are working every day to relieve it. It's political theatre, performative anger, performance art, and I think more and more people are starting to see through it. The Labour Party motion is just another example of this. If the opposition is successful in winning this vote, it would mean that Dáil Éireann would be dissolved this afternoon. There had been an election sometime in April, and the Dáil would not meet until May sometime, and it might be well into the summer before we'd have an elected government. The eviction moratorium would lapse on March 31st anyway, and no new primary legislation could be passed to deal with the housing crisis for several months. Knowing this, it is profoundly disingenuous for anyone to claim that the Labour's motion is about renters' rights or people facing homelessness. It is about competition, competition for attention on the opposition benches and on the left wing of politics. Four parties trying to outdo each other to come up with new and more dramatic language to describe the housing situation, though somehow would actually help anyone. When it comes to solutions, we largely get utopian populist ones. The latest is a promise from the Labour Party to provide a million homes in 10 years. When asked how that number was arrived at, or how it was realised, the leader of the Labour Party had no answers. When pressed, when pressed, she took a page straight out of the book of Sinn Féin. Sure aren't the Irish great at building things, she quipped. We heard that before. Count Corla, we all know where the figure of one million promised new homes came from. It's a round number, that's all, and there is a conference speech to be made. Tesco ad 2.0. I know that the Labour, Labour Party doesn't have confidence in this government, but it seems to me that it has long lost confidence in itself. It doesn't, know, it doesn't know whether to stand over its decisions in government 
and say that it would do it all again for the good of the country if given the chance, or whether, like a character from the crucible, it should deny its own truth, recant, confess, purge itself of its own past in the hope of being embra embraced back into the fold by the wider left to spare itself more fire. It is caught in a trap of its own making. The Taoiseach didn't mince his words, did he? That's Leo Vratker speaking in the Dáil this morning to that confidence motion in the government. Uh, and all of this, of course, comes about because of uh, the concerns that people have about uh, evictions that will start getting underway from Saturday onwards and over the coming months because uh, the ban is being lifted. Uh, there will be problems locally as well, it seems. Last Friday, there was no emergency accommodation allowed, no hotel rooms, no B&B accommodation, nothing. A total of 172 people presented at homeless to Lloyd County Council last month, even before the fishing ban is due to be lifted. Last Friday, there was five properly listed on daft.ie rent in Lloyd. A minimum of 96 families in Lloyd face eviction in four days' time. That these figures are not just figures. They are family, children and people from all walks of life. Shelter is a fundamental right. In the last week, the government has written off their achievements regarding housing and supply of housings, quoting building numbers. But on the ground, rent is not accessible and homeless accommodation is a breaking point. One young man from my constituency contacted me because he's in fear of imminent eviction. He was given notice to vacate before the ban came in and is not eligible for the proposed institute scheme. After coming through foster care, he is currently in a half property and has access to two young siblings. This young man is an apprentice electrician earning 400 euros a week. Although searching, he cannot locate an alternative property unless he pays nearly 2,000 euros. Loud County Councils have no compensation for him. His only alternative is to go to the Simon community. Independent Peter Fitzpatrick outlining some of the problems in County Louth. In a county like myself, my, my own, Meath, there are 127 notices to quit. There are 31 houses on uh, Daft available to rent in my county. And there are zero emergency accommodation beds in the local authority. And that's replicated right across the county, or right across the country. And do the maths on that figure, Minister. They just simply don't add up. A number of those people will end up in homelessness. They will end up in tents, and they will end up going to the Garda station looking for protection. 11,457 people throughout the state, well over 3,000 of those uh, children, and yet we know that there are 4,500 notices to quit extra on top of that figure. And what's the total pool of available rented accommodation uh, in the state at the moment? Less than 1,200. Into TD for Midwest, Petr Toby. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, a High Court hearing into this dispute between Wilson's Hospital School and one of its teachers, Enoch Burke, got underway yesterday. Frank Graney was in court for us. Well, yesterday was supposed to be the first day of the main event, you know, everything that we have spoken about in relation to Enoch Burke to date over the past few months has been in relation to court orders that were put in place last August and September, refraining him from attending at Wilson's Hospital School. But this is the main dispute itself. Uh, it's brought by the school and at the heart of it is the disciplinary process that led to Enoch Burke being suspended from his teaching duties at the school and ultimately dismissed. Now, Enoch Burke does have a counterclaim and the case was due to open at 11 o'clock yesterday morning. It's before Mr Justice Alex Owens, a very reputable, very experienced judge of the High Court. This is the first time that he has had any dealings uh, with this case and he certainly got a baptism of fire yesterday. 
because before the school was allowed the opportunity to open its case, Enoch Burke was on his the utmost importance to the judge's attention. He claimed that the other side, solicitors representing the school, had deliberately tampered with some uh, documents that were relevant to the case. So there was some to and fro in relation to that. Um, Enoch Burke made some very serious allegations against uh, the school's legal team. They were utterly um, rebutted by the other side. And once the judge had heard submissions from both sides in relation to it and in relation to what should be uh, done, he was satisfied that deliberate tampering was unlikely. Um, he didn't feel that Enoch Burke had been disadvantaged in any way. He described his arguments as flimsy, and that should have been that. The court made a ruling, mm. and the school should have been invited the opportunity to open its case. But It um, wasn't quite that, was it? <laughs> no, no. Um, mm. I suppose true to form, Enoch Burke was outraged with the court's ruling, he refused to accept it. He was warned on several occasions by Mr. Justice Owen to return to his seat, to stop shouting, to stop interrupting him, to stop interrupting the other lawyers, to sit down, that the case is going to continue, uh, but to no avail. I mean, at one point, the judge actually asked him if there was something wrong with his ears because he clearly wasn't listening to him. Um, Enoch told the judge at one point that he was obliged to respects the rules of justice. The judge told him not to tell him what to do. He said he's the one holding all the cards as the trial judge, not the other way around. Uh, Enoch accused him of all sorts. He accused him of being a law unto himself. Clearly frustrated, clearly getting nowhere. The judge at one point described himself as completely ineffective. He said, there's nothing I could do to make you pay a blind bit of notice to what I do. And I think he was bang on with that statement because this rumbled on for hours with Enoch Burke trying unsuccessfully to further his claims in relation to that allegation that he made at the beginning of proceedings. This all despite the fact that the court had made a ruling. He was clearly not interested in abiding by it. He wasn't going to allow proceedings to continue until he got his way. But that's not how the system works. And Mr Justice Owen, to the pains to point that out yesterday, I felt that between all the toing and froing, he was very patient, perhaps too patient at times. And he did warn him then that if he continued going down that path, he was going to be held in contempt, of course. And that's precisely what happened. He was held in contempt. This isn't the first time that Enoch Burke has been held mm. in contempt, of course. The court was eager to get the trial on. It has been set down for four days. And there are some very important issues to be thrashed out. So the judge was conscious of that. Um, Enoch Burke is obviously a lay litigant. He's representing himself. Mm. So it's very important that he is a, an active participant in proceedings. And the judge wanted that to happen. And he'll, but, he'll view the proceedings remotely now, uh, but after a, a wasted day, according to Justice Owens. Yeah, exactly, because the case didn't open until after lunch. And at that point, um, Enoch Burke had been excluded from the courtroom. As you say, the court did facilitate him through a live video link. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. 
feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, he didn't participate in that either. In fact, at 2 o'clock when the course reconvened, he was standing outside the door. There was some guardies stationed at the door. They'd been instructed not mm. to let him in. Unless he gave an undertaking to behave himself and he wasn't willing to do that. So at that point, all of the Burks, um, his mother, Martina, was there. So too was his sister, Amy. She was speaking on his behalf while he was outside the courtroom and his brother, Isaac. Uh, they were all there and they just quietly filed out then uh, at one point as the judge was actually addressing Amy in relation to what, what could happen. Mm. All Enoch had to do yesterday was give an undertaking to abide by the ruling of the court. I mean, if he didn't agree with it, there was an avenue of appeal open to him. But yesterday wasn't the day for that. No evidence heard yesterday. So as you say, I mean, the case did open eventually with Mark Connaughton, the barrister for the school, outlining his case against uh, Enoch Burke. But there was no evidence heard, no witnesses heard. And I suppose, you know, in the next couple of hours, we'll find out if there are going to be witnesses called today and if Enoch Burke is going to uh, participate. Well, the judge said he, he could if he was to behave himself, but he says he'd never seen uh, a level of such uh, misbehaviour before. Uh, would you say from watching uh, what happened in the court that Enoch Burke wore the judge down? He had his hands on his head on several occasions uh, and he said, what are we going to do with you? You test the patience of Job. Yes, and uh, I mean, like I said earlier, like Mr Justice Owens was very, very patient, but I suppose, you know, everyone has their limit and Enoch Burke started yesterday. He, Mr Justice Owens, kept asking that question aloud, what are we going to do with you? He said it three times and he seemed genuinely perplexed as he repeatedly asked the question to nobody in particular. Enoch Burke, in my experience covering these cases, Enoch Burke is a very impressive lay litigant. He is a teacher, obviously, by profession. Mm. He used to work in Wilson's Hospital School. As far as I can tell, he has no legal background. I know some of his siblings do. But he's a very, very impressive lay litigant. But the problem with Enoch Burke is that when a ruling goes against him, he simply refuses to accept it. And that has happened time and time again. And that is precisely what happened yesterday. And that's just simply not how the system works. Enoch Burke has come before the courts looking for certain orders and certain declarations on the one hand, but on the other hand, he's refusing to abide by orders that go against him. That's exactly what happened yesterday. That's why he was excluded from proceedings. All he had to do was tell the judge that he would participate. And he may, time will tell again, we don't know if he's going to be willing to make that undertaking today. Mm. Um, But if he doesn't, he may not be in an opportunity to cross-examine witnesses that are called on behalf of the school. Uh, At the heart of all of this is a student uh, who is transitioning, a a transgender student uh, who Mr Burke uh, didn't want uh, to refer to uh, under that student's new name or to use the they-them pronouns. 
but uh, are we going to hear about a second student uh, who Mr. Burke didn't have a, a problem with referring to by a new name or by using those pronouns? Well, this was something that was said by Mark Connaughton, the barrister representing the school, when he eventually uh, was able to um, deliver his opening address without interruption. This was after Enoch Burke had been refused entry back into the courtroom. And it took him a number of hours. And this was new information. This hasn't been um, said in court before, that apparently it is the school's case that a similar situation in relation to another student arose at the end of 2021 and that Enoch Burke apparently had no uh, issue or whether or not he had an issue with it, he certainly didn't articulate it at the time, according to Mr. Connington when he delivered his opening address yesterday. So what changed between then and May of last year? I suppose, again, that's one of the issues that will be thrashed out in court over the next a few days. Enoch Burke wasn't in court yesterday um, <clears throat> when he said that, when Mark Connington said that. And even if he had been, you know, Mark Connington's address yesterday wasn't and, and wouldn't be considered as evidence by the judge. The evidence will come from the witnesses that are called the school principal or the then school principal will be called uh, to give evidence. So too will a number of former colleagues of Enoch Burke. OK, uh, it's almost like a celebrity trial, isn't it? I believe uh, there was only standing room in uh, the court yesterday uh, and there's been so much publicity around the Burks. Uh, this is not the first time that one of uh, the family was uh, evicted from the court. Uh, they were removed from the court there a couple of weeks ago and Enoch Burke's brother and sister now uh, taking cases to the Garda Siakana's ombudsman. Yes, apparently Simeon and uh, and uh, his brother and sister have apparently made complaints against Angarda Siakana and the way they handled them in the Court of Appeal a number of weeks ago. You know, this was something that was covered extensively at the time when Enoch Burke was in the process of losing his legal challenge to those court orders that were put in place last August and September. All hell broke loose in the courtroom. Um, there were outbursts. The judge directed that they be forcibly removed. Up to 10 Gardaí were required to forcibly remove them. They did plead with them to, to leave without incident. And, and when that didn't happen, uh, they were forced to physically remove them from the courtroom. And as I understand it, uh, both Ami and Simeon have now um, made complaints to GSOC, so they will be investigated um, extensively. I have no doubt uh, Simeon was before the courts again yesterday himself because after that incident in the Court of Appeal a number of weeks ago, he was charged with a public order offence. So all of that going in in the background as well. All right. Well, uh, another interesting day ahead, no doubt, Frank. Uh, thanks for relaying uh, the events from yesterday to us this morning. No problem. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. That's our courts correspondent, Frank Grady. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, just some comments coming to us uh, about housing and homelessness and indeed evictions. Paddy Duffy says it's very depressing, uh, a very depressing moment in uh, the short life of our state, in fact. He says he really believed that we would never see an Irish government behaving like our previous rulers. The present government parties and independents that support them will go down in infamy and will never be forgotten. Thanks, Paddy, for that. Somebody else says, oh my God, isn't Leo Bradker so poetic when he gives his speeches in uh, the Dáil? I wonder if he's offering his garden for glamping for all of the people who are thrown out of their homes. Once again, it's uh, the working classes who carry the problems of this country, not the rich and not those on the dole long term. Sure, like the rich, they have it all, just the working classes who are paying their taxes and high interest rates and working all hours. Roll 
on the next government. Sick of Leo Radker and uh, his smirking. The country has never been as bad, says our caller. Strong thoughts there. Thank you for sharing them with us. If you'd like to have your say on the programme, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 0419832000 if you want to ring us with a comment. That's 0419832000. You can text or WhatsApp your comment to us either. 0861800658, the number for a text message or a WhatsApp message, 0861800658, or email michael at lmfm.ie. Now, let's talk about dog control. As you know, a working group was established after the attack on a nine-year-old boy in Enniscorty last November. That has resulted in a number of recommendations being made to the government, which were brought to Cabinet this week by the Minister for Agriculture. It'll see a single database being established for dog microchips, fines for breaching the control of dogs act increasing from €2,500 to €5,000 and 40 dog wardens are to be employed to police uh, the problems. We can talk to Kevin Kumsky once again. Kevin is uh, the chairperson of the IFA's Sheep Committee and uh, a very good morning to you Kevin and thanks for joining us on uh, the programme. Uh, it took four months to get these recommendations but it is predominantly what you were hoping to hear. Uh, good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners. Um, indeed, look, there's a lot of things in it that we were looking for um, since I became chairman. I did point out last March or uh, January 2022, I said I was making it a priority of mine because it was a serious, serious issue out there. So, um, yes, look, we welcome we welcome the, the 40 dog wardens, the increase in the fines, the, the national database. You know, they're all things that we were looking for. And, of course, I welcome that. And, indeed, if there was more dog wardens, I'd also welcome them because, you know, they will have a huge job of task on their hands. And uh, it's very important now, Michael, that they're put in place, they're trained, they're recruited, they're put in place, and we see them out on the ground because enforcement in this is going to be a key issue. Okay, Uh, and uh, should we step back and think about where they'll be deployed after they are employed? Well, that's right. It'll be, you know, it depends on where they're, where they're going to be. I know uh, when I've done a bit of research on it in the 60 dog wardens there back over the last 12 months where they're based, I think Cork is the highest number. And then the neighbouring county, Kerry, might have only one or that. So it depends on, on uh, how they're placed right around the, the country. And that's why I say there could be even more and there should be probably more. Okay. Um, in place. Okay, none of us want to see an attack on a nine-year-old boy or anybody else for that matter, such as uh, the one, that horrific attack on that child last November. But from your perspective, uh, you'd prefer to see uh, these dog wardens uh, controlling uh, the way people are are responsible for their dogs uh, in uh, rural areas and in mountainous areas. Of course, and, and that's that's the whole thing. Look, we can blame the dogs, Michael, as much as we want, and of course there is, you know, they, they have to be blamed. Um, it's their natural instincts to go hunting, but it's responsible own ownership and it's human behaviour. When you see and we look at what happened in the likes of Wicklow there uh, last weekend, you know, a man being assaulted for generously offering his land for the last 15 years and when he asked a person then about you know the dogs going up the hill on that and confronts them a bit um, being assaulted like that in that manner human behaviour and indeed over the weekend there I got reports of up in Carlingford there on the mountains and the downs there um, Alsatian type dogs being let run freely 
you know, people think they have a right to run out there on the land and that they can do what they want on it. That is not the case, and that is that has to stop. It, it, it just cannot happen anymore. You know, the, the farmers own the land. They give the right of way look to, to people come out uh, and, and walk the land. But people have to respect it because if it doesn't, it'll have to stop the way it has stopped in, in Wicklow. Indeed. There's said to have been 1,700 incidents over a five-year period between 2016 and 2021. That's right. That's right. Significant amount. And, you know, as I say, people just has, has not the respect for, for the service and, and you know, the, the amenities that they're getting to walk out there in the countryside. And it's it's not acceptable and it won't continue. And indeed, that's why we launched in 2021, we launched the No Dogs Allowed campaign because of all this uh, that was happening. You know, just no respect. And that's it's down to human behaviour. You know, as I said, we can blame the dogs for a lot of things, but it's human behaviour also. And, and there has to be a, a media campaign done around that to highlight it and, and, you know, get the information out there and tell people this has to stop. Local farmers in uh, the Cooley Mountains are, are, are no stranger to these attacks. There's been uh, an endless amount of uh, them locally. Uh, very interesting uh, to hear from uh, the Louth County veterinarian yesterday on, on the programme uh, who was telling us uh, that he uh, and his team and members of Vanguardia Shiakana were in the Cooleys over the bank holiday weekend on the 17th, 18th of March, I think, the day after Patrick's Day. Uh, and uh, they uh, met 40 dog walkers. They were all on leads, bar one. Uh, there was one dog uh, that was roaming unaccompanied and then one dog uh, that wasn't microchipped. Uh, and I think that would indicate that the majority of dog owners are responsible. That is. Look, at you, the, the majority of dog owners and the majority of people out there do look after their dogs. But unfortunately, there is a significant number. When you have roughly, we're talking between eight and 900,000 dogs in the country, Michael, I seen there on statistics yesterday, just looking them up, 75,000 uh, licenses issued in 2021. Um, on the spot, fines was 924. And this is where the dog wardens will come into it. When you see on the spot fines, 924 was issued. Um, it's a small percentage, but out of that 924 paid fines was 417. Less than half was paid. Prosecutions was 97 and convictions was 32. So them statistics will have to change and the, the dog wardens has the job at a big task. Right, um, we'll just remind people of that figure of 1,700 incidents over a five-year period. That's right, exactly, exactly. And look, at I'd be in contact with, with them in the Cooley Mountains and different all across the country, but um, my colleague there, Matthew McGuigan, uh, you know, he highlights it the best he can and that's what we say. It just cannot continue and... You know, dogs coming across, then we do. T- we have uh, in the submission as well. There has to be correspondence uh, with the, the authorities in Northern Ireland as well mm. for, for dogs coming across from Northern Ireland as well. I know, we do dread hearing from Matthew. I mean, it's always good to talk to him, but whenever you get a message from Matthew McGreehan, the first thing you think is, oh, what happened? Yeah, exactly. That is, mm. it's an incident. Mm. Yeah, that's for sure. And it's, it's uh, as I say, I'm getting calls daily, if not daily, certainly weekly of incidents and uh, some uh, sort or other regarding dogs. Do you think that what the government uh, is about to introduce goes far enough or should 
it go further? Should there be a question about dog ownership? Because everybody says it's not the dog, it's the owners. And if the owner's behaviour is resulting in these type of attacks, well, then it could be argued, could it not, that they're not fit to own a dog? Exactly, and this this will certainly also have to be looked at, and of course that's where where it will come down to. Um, these, as I said, you know, we can bring in all the laws and enforcements and everything into place, um, but at the you know when they're there, if they're not enforced, is the is the major thing. You know, if there's not penalties and sanctions, you know, and people appearing in court, but. Yeah, it's down, as I said, and there will have to be training for people and maybe that that could be a route that we might have to go that, you know, that before, even before you have a herd number, you have to have certain standards and everything, the same as our, a flock number with sheep or any other animals. So it could it could well be a route that might have to be taken mm. if the human behaviour does not change. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, the idea of having a, a driving test or something similar to that uh, for owning a, a dog and taking the lessons and then passing the test, uh, difficult to police uh, given that a, a dog is usually a member of a, a family, if you like. So um, I might pass the test, but the other members of the household won't. Well, that's that's the thing, and it, that's true. And you know, and I suppose a media campaign, you know, highlighting the things and and all the responsibilities around dog ownership, you know, would be a, a step also in the right direction to awareness campaign and and you know have it out there fairly fairly often. Mm, but would you like to see some people being banned from owning a dog? I, I certainly would. Yes, I'll make no queries about it. There is people out there that shouldn't have a dog because they're absolutely no responsibility and it, it's very annoying when you get phone calls from the likes of, of Matthew and people that's there on the, out on Cooley Mountains and different mountains when people just goes in on, on uh, a walkway and next thing clip the lead on the dog and let the dog off mm. like that's a ridiculous attitude to mm. have and they, that's then people shouldn't have dogs if that's their attitude. Or assault the landowner who's asking them not well, to take dogs onto his land. Exactly, exactly. Like, that is unquestionable, you know. It's 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 ridiculous attitude to have. The man that gave us, you know, was one of the first walkways, and I know, I know the man well and was up and met with him, you know, in Wicklow there back a couple of weeks ago at a different meeting in, in uh, Tenahili, and mm. to see that I heard the phone call that I got that he was attacked and assaulted, it's... You know, it'd just make your blood boil, to be honest. Mm. Now, why, why is there a reluctance to introduce a, a ban of uh, this sort, do you think? I mean, if there was a ban of uh, that sort, you'd hope that it would act as a deterrent. Uh, maybe it would be a two or three strikes and you're out. And after the first or the second strike, it might make people think uh, and then start to change their behaviour and that they would never actually be banned from owning a, a dog. But they may appreciate that responsibility comes with the privilege. Well, that's true. And I suppose that's, again, where it comes back to, you know, when we go in to see convictions and all that and, and along with the penalties in place, you know, you could say that the judge would have the, the option there to say, look at the mourner when you're done for, for the breathalyzer or any other incident on the road, so many penalty points, you know, that you get so many chances and that's it, you're banned from having a dog after that, you know, if you have a conviction or two or whatever. And it's it's certainly something should be looked at as well. Mm. Uh, did you say there's 60 dog wardens in the country at the moment? 60, 60 at the moment, and right. 14 of them is in Cork, I think. OK, but, but but increasing that by 40, uh, I mean, it's what, 70-80% increase uh, is pretty significant, isn't it? It is, that's what I'd say. It is, of course, mm. significant, but of course we're starting from a very low number at, at 60. Like, when you 
when you take 60 and do the maths on it into about 900,000 dogs, you know, they have a huge responsibility there. So uh, 60 was very low, but definitely I do welcome it. You know, we, I didn't put a figure on it at any stage, mm. but I said that the numbers should have to be increased. And when you see it increasing by that percentage, it's, it has to be welcomed. And I thank, mm. you know, Minister McConnell and Minister Humphreys and, and the relevant authorities for working with us on that. Uh, and perhaps the increase in dog wardens will result in clamping down and finding people and changing behaviour. We hope that isn't the case. Uh, a bit like uh, the idea of banning people from owning a, a dog, that it will act as a deterrent. That's true. That's quite true. Yes, that it, it will indeed. And, and hopefully, hopefully that it'll, it'll have an impact. Mm, indeed. And hopefully conversations like this on the radio, Kevin, will uh, make people think about the responsibilities that they have. Uh, because... Uh, find it very hard to think uh, that there's many people uh, who wouldn't uh, be appalled at the idea of uh, their pet uh, worrying or destroying sheep or attacking people as the case may be. That's exactly and indeed thanks to you Michael and all the radio stations and media outlets you know that does give us the opportunity because as I say the more it's highlighted on the media and that People has the attitude, you know, my dog won't do this and that they are a pest and everything. And of course, everybody, the responsible people, loves their dogs. But when the dog gets out, as I said, that's the natural instinct as well to kill. And, and you really can't blame the dog either. You know, it's their ownership and responsibility. OK, Kevin, thank you indeed. Hopefully changes afoot. That's uh, Kevin Comiskey, chairperson of the IFA's Sheep Committee. Michael Michael Reed Reed on on LMFM. Over the course of uh, the last year, the Oireachtas Joint Committee on the Implementation of uh, the Good Friday Agreement has been speaking to many of the architects of uh, the Good Friday Agreement, uh, trying to get uh, an understanding of how one of uh, the most important documents ever signed on uh, this island came about and brought peace after 40 years of troubles. The chairperson of uh, that committee is Fergus O'Dowd, a Fine Gael TD in Louth, who's on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Fergus O'Dowd. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme because yesterday you published your report into the hearings that you had with many of uh, these key players in the process that led up to peace on this island. Uh, tell us a, a little bit about your report, if you would. Please. Well, the report basically, uh, as you say, we met with civil servants, politicians, uh, Taoiseach, uh, former chiefs of staff to British Prime Minister, British former British Prime Minister himself, John Major. Uh, we, as I said, we had Bertie Ahern, we had uh, Senator Mitchell from America, and the, the we were a very broad committee, Michael. And just very quickly, we have 15 members of the Dáil and Senate all together on it, but we also have 10 of the 18 MPs elected in the North to Westminster participate fully in our committee as well. So it's it's a very it's a very broad church to committee because all political views are represented on it, and obviously uh, it's the work that we have to do now that we'll be concentrating on, which is looking at the possible constitutional future for the whole of the island and what options there might or might not be that might find favour. I think, obviously, clearly our recommendations were that clearly that the political parties should get back together power sharing. One hugely important point that was agreed, and as we know it only recently, uh, 
you know, turned the right way again was the relationship between the British and the Irish governments, which had got very bad uh, under one or two British prime ministers recently, has significantly improved. And that's a key point of progress made by everybody, that when the British and Irish governments are of the same opinion, of the same mind, and agree and trust each other, you get the most progress. Also, the importance of the United States, the weakness of the agreement in the uh, Strand 2, that's the north-south bodies, that we needed a lot more progress on that than we actually got. And part of the narrative we got was that there was a much more comprehensive list agreed or proposed initially, but that there was a resistance from unionism at the time to have more north-south bodies because the emphasis on the Good Friday Agreement was as much on the north-south bodies as it was on the, you know, the, 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 the you know, the government in 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 Stormont. Mm. So they're, they're they're the broader issues, but it's also a matter of history now, at least, that all of those key participants are recorded. Some of the meetings on went on, as you know, for over two hours. So it's all there for students of history, but for people who want change and want and want to manage that change, we now enter into a next period of our work. Uh, which is to examine what the future might be. Okay. That would be, be really challenging and I think really interesting. Uh, after uh, speaking uh, with the architects of uh, the Good Friday Agreement or, or those who are, are still with us, uh, at least uh, I know that you paid tribute to John Hume, David Trimble, Albert Reynolds, Martin McGuinness, David Irvine and Mo Molum uh, as well yes. yesterday. Uh, your report uh, is very timely, as I'm sure it was intended to be uh, ahead of of uh, the 25th anniversary on the 10th of April. Yes, Michael, it is. And I think, the, again, to stress, uh, obviously one of the weaknesses of our committee, uh, there are 10, 10 members of 10 MPs get involved, but eight don't. And obviously those eight are unionist members. And we have to reach out to unionism because the Good Friday Agreement recognises you know, the equal importance of being a unionist and being British as it is to being a Republican or indeed to be neither a Republican nor a unionist. So, so, so to get, so when we look to the future, we have to make sure that whatever happens, that it's a warm place for unionism and for nationalism and for people who, who are neither, you know, neither hold either sway. So, I mean, it's a big challenge for us. And I think we've worked very well together as a committee. We've also reached out and we've met privately members of the, the DUP and the UUP and also, you know, like, you know, we, we've been to Belfast, we've been to Derry, we've been to London, we've been to Washington, we've met with the State Department in Washington. We, we, you know, we're not, we're under the radar in the sense of mm. you don't hear about us every day, but we're doing a lot of excellent work and there's very good relations built up between all of us. Uh, so we don't divide on on the political grounds, so we, we examine and will examine in detail all the possible options for the future and I think that would be the strength of our report our next report uh, that we'll be able to look objectively at and, and invite witnesses who want to participate in in a debate on the future I'd uh, like to hear more uh, about uh, the report you've just published uh, and indeed uh, the next phase and uh, where we go to from here uh, but you said yesterday that the report you've just published is incomplete uh, because peace in Northern Ireland remains a uh, process. Uh, 
Uh, and coincidentally, uh, I, I suppose, that comes with intelligence uh, from MI5, which has led uh, to the threat level in Northern Ireland being raised from substantial to severe. It's the first change in 12 years. MI5 says it's because of a rise in dissident Republican activity, including a recent gun attack on a top police officer. 12 years ago, the threat level was actually lowered. uh, And it just seems almost uh, ironic uh, and beyond disappointing as we come to the 25th anniversary, doesn't it? It is very disappointing, Michael, and the fact that as we speak, that one of the key parts is that the Assembly in Stormont is not sitting, and it's not sitting because one party is insisting uh, on a veto, and while the political uh, opinion in the, in the Parliament, I think, is across all parties, and it all is that we must give the DUP time you know, to, to, to decide what they're going to do, but there has to be a limit to that as well, because the difficulty is that the majority of members of the Assembly want to go ahead and work, but the rules where, you know, where, where, where the Deputy Minister, <coughs> the Deputy Minister's party, or the person that would be the Deputy Minister, when they don't consent to going into to the administration, there isn't a mechanism whereby the next, uh, the, or the next, the other remaining groups could. So, like, there, there is a there is a serious crisis there, and it, it is a fact. Um, so hopefully Jeffrey Donaldson will come to a decision sooner rather than later, uh, and that's why I think the uh, the British government have extended the date for a possible election. It could be as far out as January 2024 to allow that space. But ultimately, you know, changes. You know, we we, we have to get an administration up and running. We have mm. to get the north south bodies working, uh, and you know the third party east west relationships have significantly improved so you are right it is very very disappointing uh, joe biden is is coming to is coming to northern ireland and hopefully the south and hopefully county Loud very soon and i mean there's a huge there's huge goodwill in america there's huge goodwill in in, in obviously in europe uh, and people have moved mountains you know to get to sort out the protocol and i think it's time for the dup to make up their minds uh, but you know we, we let them make up their minds but I think the you know the message is getting clearer all the time that if the agreement has to work the executive must be in place okay of uh, course it, it was David Trimble uh, who uh, negotiated uh, the Good Friday agreement on behalf of the unionist community and the UUP but it's the DUP that is in government now or won't take its seats in government more to the point or won't cooperate with the north-south bodies Uh, and uh, is it right to think uh, that it's that change in the political landscape uh, that has led to the current problems? Well, well, yeah, well to, to a certain extent, that's true. But we mustn't forget either that Ian Paisley, who led the DUP, who opposed, in fact, the Good Friday Agreement, uh, ultimately embraced the position of, of first, uh, first minister, mm. and both him and and Martin McGuinness, the Chuckle Brothers, it Chuckle was remarkable. Brothers, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, yeah. if those two guys could work mm. together, and they did, yeah. and did it successfully. Uh, do you know uh, how? Do you know how they did? Uh, I mean, uh, a lot of us would remember 1998, and I think a, a lot of us would look back to the early months of 1998, uh, and the idea that a deal was impossible uh, because people were so far apart. But somehow, uh, when it got to the 10th of April, 
they signed the document uh, and agreed to peace. Uh, have you a, a, a better understanding after speaking to all of these people over the course of the last year how that well, was achieved? Well, just as you said, Michael, it seemed to have been almost a last minute decision by David Trimble because George Mitchell insisted that they had to make up their minds by that date. And right up to the night before, there were still negotiations going on and nothing was agreed until everything was agreed. And there were last minute changes. One of them was in the North South bodies, the number of them. Uh, and Trimble, Trimble, in fairness to him, Trimble uh, made the decision, even though Jeffrey Donaldson and and others walked out actually from his from his party at that time, at the critical point in those negotiations. Donaldson said no, and he did walk out, um, and that was you know that was a critical. Uh, point of the talks but but uh, Trimble held his nerve and in fairness to him I think history will be much kinder to him than than, than some of his colleagues have been um, you know and I think in fairness it wouldn't have happened without him if Trimble hadn't signed on <clears throat> we wouldn't we wouldn't have had the peace that, that we have had and the same we're in the same situation now you have you have the unionists led by Jeffrey Donaldson who is not at this moment consenting to the change that is there and part of the change is that the majority of people uh, do not support the mm. unionists anymore so like I mean that's a huge fundamental demographic change as well so if and when Trimble goes or sorry even when Donaldson goes back in you know he is taking he, he's taking uh, office under Sinn Féin first minister and that is also a fact and he you know that is the reality and democracy is saying that that is what must happen up there and if that doesn't happen and if the Good Friday Agreement fails and it's not succeeding as we speak you know that is a real crisis for everybody and that's why I think yeah. that, that the British and Irish governments are putting so much effort into trying to find a solution for everybody right now Yeah well it was fundamental to the agreement uh, without power sharing there is not really a Good Friday Agreement in place this threat to peace, uh, this imminent threat of a, an attack uh, that MI5 uh, is uh, contemplating, uh, again, doesn't really reflect a Good Friday agreement. Uh, I don't think it's critical, I'm not suggesting that, uh, but uh, can these problems uh, be resolved and uh, can we get back on the right track, do you think? Well, I think we've met, I've met privately with some members uh, in unionist parties, including the DUP. Uh, now, they weren't the actual leadership, literally, in the personal sense, but like we're getting, we're getting important signals from them, you know, that, that there is a way forward. But, I mean, until, until they sign on the dotted line, until Jeffrey Donaldson says yes, and he's a history of saying no, as we all know, uh, you know, it won't happen and it'll be I understand that the Europeans the Americans the British government the Irish government are ready to announce significant increase investment in the economy in Northern Ireland and in the institutions up there uh, as a mark of, of commitment to the future working together uh, so these are all weighed in the balance now and the decision is with is with Jeffrey Donaldson, and we're leaving him that space to make that that decision now. And hopefully, that's that's what will happen. And if it doesn't, as I said, you know, it'll create it'll create it's a very serious crisis indeed. 
Okay. Thank you indeed uh, for Thank joining you. us uh, this morning. Uh, Fine Gael TD for Loud and East Mead. Fergus O'Dowd, who is uh, the chairperson of uh, that joint Oireachtas committee on the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on LMFM. John is in Dundalk. Thanks for your text, John. He says, what about all of these oversized houses that have been built over the years? Most of them have garages almost the size of a house in itself. Uh, these are buildings that are already uh, built and available. Surely they could be turned into small apartments and provide accommodation for people or for small families if in country areas it could help create employment by putting on extra bus routes. Uh, I think it's worth the government investigating this and it would help ease the housing crisis. I think there's uh, probably a point in that, John. Some of those outhouses, garages or whatever they are, are a lot bigger than my house. Uh, Mick and Kel says we've the same problem with dogs at the spire of Lloyd. Loose dogs, no muzzle owners should be made to do a course ban all devil dogs from Ireland. Thanks Mick for that. Uh, we'd a text from Jerry in Wilkinstown who says Michael can you not shoot any dogs that are found loose on private property well I don't think that's quite the case I think you can farmers can shoot dogs if they believe they're a threat to uh, livestock uh, we had somebody else in touch saying there's a problem with breeding dogs in housing estates in a, a very small shed out the back from these dogs that cost thousands the barking and the noise that goes on when the pups are born and the people next door have children uh, and uh, there's lots of people in the area who are causing great disturbances year in, year out. Can you have breeding going on in these built-up areas? Well, there may be some problems that you might want to bring to the attention of uh, the county veterinarian. Call your county council and ask to speak to the county veterinarian and they may wish to investigate your complaint. Now, uh, let's uh, turn our attention to our newest neighbours in uh, this country, some 78,000 people who've arrived here since the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. 41% of our respondents said that they want to remain in Ireland, that they've decided to do so longer term. And then uh, 24% have no decision yet. Sorry, 24% are going to come home as soon as they can. And then 32% do not have a decision yet. Now, we will look into those three categories just in a minute. We did have other options uh, in this uh, survey because those options just come again from our conversations with people. Many people mentioned that they are going to move to a different country or we all know very well that there are thousands of people who already returned home. Of course, those percentages are not representative enough. Like number-wise, those people are not well represented in our surveys because they do not interested in, in Irish events, right? If they move on or if they've returned back. But we still have some interesting insights from those who did reply. So top reasons to move to a different country is that uh, issues with the uh, job search, even though English is good, but apparently... Uh, this respondent faced a difficulty in, in finding an, an employment. And then, of course, the accommodation crisis is a factor and medical services were named several times as well. And then in, in regards to returning home, 
of course, it's still the same families waiting, never planned to be an immigrant and just tired, just want to go home. Never planned to be an immigrant, but some 78,000 uh, Ukrainian refugees here. And uh, that's Olina Redrugina of uh, the Ukraine Action Ireland group after their survey of some 8,000 people who've made this country their new home. Now, the confidence motion in the government continues in the doll as we speak, but we can go back to the debate last night in the Dáil and indeed yesterday afternoon on the evictions ban now. I'm asking every TD to back this bill. Don't vote to evict your own constituents into homelessness. But Taoiseach, it shouldn't come to a vote. And so I ask you to reverse your decision before you, it's too late. I ask you to keep this vital protection for enters in place until January of next year. Thank you very much. Please. Thanks, Deputy. I'd be interested if you know how many new tenancies were created in Ireland last year. They're not new. They're not new. 50,000 new tenancies were created last year in Ireland. And that means 50,000 people found a new place to live. It's possible that in some cases those properties were rented out before. But the fact is, and maybe even in most cases, maybe even in most cases, Deputy, but 50,000 new tenancies created last year means that 50,000 people found a new place to live. It might have been a new property to rent. It might have been just that they were renting it for the first time. Uh, And that is the answer to your question, Deputy, as to where people will go. New tenancies. 50,000 individuals and families found a new place to rent last year. That will be the same this year. In some cases, it'll be social housing tenancies. In other cases, it'll be a private housing tenancy. And in other cases, it'll be a HAP tenancy. Uh, Emergency accommodation is not the solution, but we will increase the amount of emergency accommodation uh, for um, a a, a group that that may may need us, that can't find uh, a a place to go. And I think, Deputy, what you're doing is you're trying to... Uh, exploit people's fears and anxieties, uh, and if anything, fuel them. Uh, that is what you're trying to do, exploit fears and anxieties uh, and fuel them when you should be trying to reassure people uh, and help people, and that's, that's, uh, that's not what you're doing. You're creating the impression that 4,000 notices to quit automatically turns into 4,000 families uh, in emergency accommodation. That's the Taoiseach Leo Vradker explaining why the government is uh, deciding to end the ban on evictions and evictions will start up again from Saturday and indeed it looks like uh, the government will win the vote on that Sinn Féin bill this evening and it will win a vote of confidence in the government in the Dáil this morning. That's our programme for today. Maggie McGuire Research. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.